from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer who stares into the abyss and never loses focus. His writing is stark, caustic, and not for the faint of heart. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Militant, and his upcoming novel, The Malcontents. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Mason Marks. Mason, welcome to the show. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for joining me. I read The Militant and was both shocked and impressed by your willingness to really dive into the darker aspects of existence. And I'm looking forward to discussing some of the salient points in the book. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it, too. And listeners at home, just full disclosure, this episode will be spoiler heavy. So if you'd like to read the book before listening to the episode... All links will be in the description and make sure to leave a review on Amazon and or Goodreads as it really does help the authors in this case. So moving right into it, I grew up in a fundamentalist evangelical church and based on the lifestyle of Victor, the protagonist of the story, it seems like you did as well. Either that or you did some very meticulous research. Was that how you were raised? And if so, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely was raised that way. I attended Sunday school as a child and probably church attendance, maybe until middle school. And I went to hell houses. Those chapters are based just on my own experiences there. They're pretty accurate reflections of what they were like back then. But, you know, religion is just everywhere here. It's inescapable. I mean, there's nearly a Baptist church on every corner. And just growing up in South Carolina in the 90s, I mean, it would have been very unusual to not be raised as a Christian just because it's a very conservative, very religious area. Okay. And I'm assuming you were raised Baptist? Yeah, primarily. I mean, we had visited other denominations in the past, but yeah, primarily just because that's what's big here, you know? Yeah. So is that the whole nine yards, like no dancing, no drinking? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a lot of that. And I think a lot of Baptist churches have tried to become more progressive now because they realize that their kind of old fashioned, stodgy ways aren't uh, bringing in people to sit in the pews anymore. But yeah, I mean, that's how it was back then. It was all very like fire and brimstone and very kind of centered around controlling people's behavior. You know, mm, yeah. Well, from my experience, it seems like if you keep yourself insulated in a Christian school and go to a Christian college and listen to Christian music, you can insulate and shelter yourself quite a bit. But every once in a while, life happens. And sometimes what happens is horrific. So was this story based on any real life tragedy that seemed to defy the existence of God? Well, so I, what I assume you mean is like, did something happen in my own life that was kind of similar to Victor and Sarah? Yeah. Um, no, no, I mean, not really. I, I never watched my fiance be murdered in front of me, <laughs> you know, but I've been there, you know, I lost my dad about 10 years ago to cancer. And I kind of think that a lot of Victor's reflections are my own recollections of that time period, just about the kind of empty, vapid way that most people approach death 
in situations where someone has just recently died. And it's kind of like people just feel compelled to offer all those kind of trite platitudes just over and over Mm. because it's all they can do. It's all they can think to do or say, and it's really all they can do to stop thinking about the fact that they're going to die one day too. Yeah. I remember being in a situation on my job where a uh, child had passed away and the uh, physician had to come in to tell the family that, you know, they attempted CPR and they couldn't do anything to save the child. I think the child was... It had just turned one, just like a month prior or something like that. And the best thing the doctor had when the woman asked why was because God doesn't just want old people in heaven. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that is awful, man. Christ. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I sat there and listened to it. And I mean, I guess, I don't know, maybe people want to hear that rather than because fucked up shit happens. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well... You know, I think part of it's just driven by people's desire to want to comfort someone who's going through a hard time. But a lot of times it comes out in religious context, kind of like what you just said. And also things like, oh, they're in a better place now, or this is God's plan. He works in mysterious ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I really like about the story is that you don't whitewash human emotion and the response to stress and trauma. When Sarah offers up her engagement ring to the criminal, it's almost as if Victor resents her for it and feels almost like he had kind of been cuckolded in a way. So his response definitely escalates the situation. What is it about the messy human emotions that draws you into incorporating them into your story? Well, I think a lot of that works its way into the book just because of its focus, you know. I'd say it's existential horror, maybe psychological. There aren't axe murderers and ghosts. This is kind of like more of the horror of everyday life and even mundane life, you know, but it encapsulates kind of some of the worst moments of people's lives. And a lot of them are the kind of things that we're all going to go through eventually. And, you know, I'd also would just say that horror is just often kind of like that writ large. You know, I think that there's often some sort of element of real life problems or trauma kind of in every narrative. And of course, one of the most horrific parts is the grief he gets from Sarah's father that, I mean, basically makes him suicidal. I would have to say that Victor's reaction escalated the situation to its ultimate conclusion, but the blame still lies on the criminal. And I mean, I've, believe it or not, I've had my own experience with a family member blaming another family member for someone's death based solely on the way they conducted their personal lives. So you've mentioned before, you know, people's desire to comfort, people's fear of their own mortality. Why is it, do you think, that some people can accept the chaos of existence and sense of their own mortality and... Why do you think some people can't? Like, what is it about their emotional disposition that makes that possible in some cases and not in others? So, you know, I think that everyone tends to assume that not only everything kind of in the world, but also life itself has a function and a purpose and that there's reason and order behind everything. And I mean, I think that believing that is just a lot more comforting than looking at the alternative. God provides order, provides stability and comfort. And I I mean, I think that's part of why he's so appealing. And I can't really say why some people are kind of like more apt to seek that sort of thing out Mm -hmm. or, you know, why others might go without it, you know, but I think that there's probably been kind of a lot of silent non-believers throughout history who just professed their religion, you know, or they acted like they adopted it because it's just, what's culturally prevalent. It's everywhere around them. You're not going to be the weirdo who doesn't believe in God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I I don't know. I'm not sure how new it really is. I think people are just kind of more comfortable saying it, talking about it now. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people that go to church, at least, you know, tame versions of church, not like snake handlers or anything like that, that, uh, (laughs) you know, they just go for the sense of community. I think people have an indwelling need for myth, ritual, Most people want to 
have some sort of rites of passage, whether that be for marriage, for the funeral, for, you know, like even the baptism of a child or, you know, so on and so forth. Because when you think about as we evolved from the primordial ooze and climbed out of the water, when we saw the sun, the first thing we did was not to figure out what it was composed of. The first thing we did was construct a ritual to worship it. Yeah. You know, it's almost like this evolutionary trait that's kind of left over. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned going to more than one, actually, the uh, the hell house. So that was definitely based on something real. And it sounds like I, I was assuming that it was just something that your particular church that you went to put on. But you said you went to multiple different locations that put this on. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I didn't think much about all that until at some point I was reading The God Delusion by Dawkins. And he talks about it quite a bit. And he kind of explores how what a strange thing psychologically that is to do to a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but he kind of highlights how common it was. It wasn't just a little thing happening, you know, in my little patch of the woods here in South Carolina. I mean, it was a pretty common thing because they got this idea in their head that, oh, let's make something entertaining that's scary and will kind of like pressure them into conforming into our belief system, you know. But I don't know. I would even bring friends to it. And um, kind of one of the things that I've thought about over the years, one of the friends that I brought to it, he was a little black boy and his name was Joffrey. And he later came out as gay. And then after that, he's trans. I always just kind of wondered what that sort of exposure early on may have done to him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because homophobia is just such a very big kind of, thick, prevalent theme in those things. And you can see that in the book too, right? Because it's like the gay guy gets AIDS and dies and goes to hell and he's tortured and all this stuff. And it's just like, I wonder what sort of effect that that might have on someone later on. If, mm -hmm. you know, I could see how it might make you hate yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To the point you were making, it definitely was not exclusive to your church or your area. I didn't have a hell house. They actually called my version to hell and back. And I'd seen it multiple times, and then when I came of age, I don't know what age that would have been, maybe like 11, 12, 13, we had a play called To Hell and Back. The plot was basically people that had died walked up to God standing at a judge's bench, and their transgressions were read aloud to them. If part of their story included them getting saved and bored again, then God would say, enter heaven, thou good and faithful servant. Jesus would appear, music would play, and they'd be let off into heaven. But if not, God would say, depart from me, I never knew you. And demons would come out of a makeshift hell and drag you kicking and screaming into it. Yeah. And oddly enough, I was one of the people that got dragged to hell and, <laughs> and was told when we were rehearsing, was told to scream louder and fight harder because I wasn't doing enough. <laughs> so to say that all of those stories about the rapture, especially there was times when I was a little kid, if I couldn't find my mother or my dad, like they were just oddly in some weird place, <laughs> I would literally think the rapture took because I, you know, took a piece of candy or some shit like that. So <laughs> you've been left behind. <laughs> I've been left behind. God damn it. So basically that was a very long way of getting around to my question of what do you think some other traumas are that maybe aren't quite so evident that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not shitting on all Christian churches, just the fundamentalist mind control, crazy ones. What are some of the traumas that you think they may inflict on children and adolescents that maybe aren't quite so evident? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really good question. I think I would start by saying my quarrel really isn't just with all Christians either. It's more the institutions. Yeah. You know what I mean? That underpins the entire thing. But to answer the question more directly, I'd say that, you know, pedophilia probably comes as a pretty obvious example. I mean, you know, the Catholics make a lot of headlines, but it is a problem for every organized religion all around the globe. It's something that they don't like talking about and they do very little to address it often when it happens, and they often cover it up too, you know? So I think that's one, but kind of just going back to the homophobia thing that we were talking about just a moment ago, I think obviously historically a lot of churches have been very homophobic. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that did a lot of damage to a lot of people's psyches over the years to constantly be maligned because of your sexual orientation 
or any of those aspects of your identity like that. And really, I mean, I'd say all that fire and brimstone that you see in Hell House, it makes it obvious, right? It's just very overt messaging. But I'd say the same thing happens in Sunday schools, you know, on a smaller scale. It's it's hard to say what kind of effect that kind of fear mongering would have, you know, on a young mind, especially over a long period of time, you know? Mm, yeah. And also, it wasn't just the, like, in your case, the Hell House, or in my case, the To Hell and Back. It was the passion plays. Like, long before Mel Gibson decided to make The Passion of the Christ, I mean, the passion play that the church I grew up in does it still to this day. I mean, they gave Mel Gibson a run for his money as far as gore and violence. They even had... They had some sort of a prosthetic on the guy's side where, you know, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed to prove that he was dead. I mean, they had him all gored up. They had, you know, the cat of nine tails. I forget how they did it, but they made it look somehow it, it looked like they were actually striking him. And one year, I think they even actually had Judas literally hang himself. You know, of course, he had some sort of a harness on, but he looked like he was hanging from his neck. Did you have anything like that as far as a passion play is concerned? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that was another thing. Actually, I, I never really stopped and thought about that. But I went to a lot of plays, religious ones as a kid. And yeah, they they definitely do kind of, I don't know, go really deep into that. It's like <laughs> Christian gore porn or something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I don't know, that they get off on it, maybe watching them get mutilated. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there was actually a... Uh... Wasn't there a South Park episode where it turns out Mel Gibson was into BDSM? He was like a masochist. <laughs> oh, man. I must have missed that one, but it, it sounds like it probably is. <laughs> yeah, I think there is. Yeah. <laughs> so the storyline involving Victor's brother, Henry, and the horrors of war, to me, smacks of personal experience, which makes sense because I read that you're a combat veteran yourself. Was it hard to write Henry's storyline, and did you find it cathartic at all? Um, so I guess a couple of things. One part of Henry's incident, or at least the, the chapter where he's actually in Afghanistan, that is something that actually happened with the kid and the injury and the kind of confusing situation. But honestly, I wish I could say it was cathartic, but it really wasn't, you know, and that's not to say, I mean, I'm sure many other veterans do get something out of that sort of thing. But going back to kind of what I was saying, there's a pretty bleak part of the book where this young Afghan boy gets his hand blown off by an IED. And then this kind of confusing scene ensues, you know, where they have to medevac him. Mm. And it's meant to highlight the sort of random chaotic nature of war, as well as it's just overall pointlessness. But along the way, it, it also just made me think a lot about a friend that I lost over there. His vehicle hit an IED and he was the gunner in the turret, so it crushed his body whenever his Humvee flipped. And, you know, I just, I thought a lot about his wife, you know, and kind of how long it took her to move on from it mm. and just kind of how evident her pain was from it, you know? And it just really makes you kind of stop and think, like, for what, you know? What was achieved by any of this? You know, nothing. You know, I think Afghanistan in particular, because it looks just like it did back in the 90s now, you know, and it's kind of sad to say, but I, I've really known that was going to happen for a long time that eventually the Taliban would retake control. And the simple reason is more Afghans identify with the Taliban, you know, and their beliefs and their ideology than the previous Western backed government, you know, and you can't really suppress that kind of popular support, you know, it's, it's the exact same thing that happened in Vietnam. You can't come into a country, dismantle its government entirely, impose something else on them, and then expect them to be like, okay, great. Well, the return to Mill Street was almost unbearable to read. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there is anything I hate worse than men in designer suits telling you that the church is entitled to 10% of your income. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you put it into perspective, you obviously work out how crazy would it be if or how crazy would you look at someone if you went to a new gym to sign up and they told you your membership dues were 10 percent of your income? <laughs> <laughs> it would be pretty astronomical. Yeah, <laughs> terrible gym membership. for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So do you think people that go to these mega churches 
Are they cognizant of how much of their money is going to the opulent appearance of the church and its clergy and how little is actually going to charitable activities like funding Doctors Without Borders and things like that? So, I mean, I doubt that your average Christian who tithes really thinks much about like, oh, where is my money going? You know, I think that for most of them, tithing is kind of one of those check in the box things Mm -hmm. and that people do it because it makes them feel better and it makes them feel like better Christians, you know? And in some ways I'm speaking from experience because I mean, I had at some point even went to church as an adult and yeah, I mean, that's kind of the psychological pressures that operate there, I think. And then on top of that, some churches are absolutely as pushy as the pastor in my story because he's based on a real guy. He was once one of the biggest names around here in South Carolina in preaching. And um, ultimately, he got himself disgraced and kicked out of his church. But you know, he's a real guy, and he really said things exactly like all of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean— I understand wanting to go like to a nice country club or something like that, but we're talking about like tax exempt money that I would assume is supposed to be earmarked for particular things. But yeah, I don't know if people try to rationalize it or if maybe they do kind of treat it like a country club. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, the scene with Henry and Dr. Plum at the VA had a lot of authenticity to it. I really feel bad for the issues that deployed soldiers have to deal with, not only during deployment, but especially when they get back dealing with PTSD and physical injuries. I actually knew a guy that said he was on some sort of peer support team because he said it was common for a lot of guys and girls that got deployed for long periods of time to come back and find that their significant others and spouses had left them for someone else because the loneliness was basically killing them, I suppose. So has writing been beneficial to you in dealing with the stresses of combat? And if so, what else have you found to be beneficial? Um, so I think kind of like I said before, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a total wash. Uh, you know, I think that writing probably did maybe help in the longer term, but it's it also just kind of like dredges up a lot of bad things whenever you're you're actually writing it, you know? Yeah. And I guess I don't necessarily mean like when I was talking about Henry's narrative being cathartic, I just mean writing in general, the act of storytelling. Yeah. I think in that respect, it certainly can be, you know, I mean, I think writing is really kind of like my main art form, but I get a lot out of film and music, you know, I think horror and metal kind of gives you that little slice of violence that everyone (laughs) craves. You know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think writing has probably been just good for my mental health in general. Yeah. Mm. Are there any other, uh, well, you mentioned metal and the like, but as far as like anything you produce yourself or is that what you were talking about? Are you like in a metal band or anything like that? Oh no, man. I I wish I don't have any musical ability. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. No. Gotcha. I, uh, I write books. Gotcha. Well, when uh, Victor and Henry go back to his place and they're discussing some of the meds that Victor's taking, he states that the meds work, but that they also take a piece of him with them. And I can relate to that. It's kind of like, I guess, chemo for cancer. It kills the cancer, but it damn near kills you along with it. So in your experience, what are the common traits that you find among people that you know, or maybe even yourself, that have gone through traumatic experiences, whether on the battlefield or in everyday life, and are somehow able to live healthy, balanced lives? Well, uh, I think in terms of like PTSD specifically, you know, I think I wish I could say it. I knew of a lot of really just great success stories, you know, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately, I think a lot of times that sort of pain, once it really just develops and sets in there, I think it's just something that you kind of struggle with constantly. You know, there's no cure. There's no pill. Um, There's obviously a lot of different things that they can do to better their mental health and everything like that. But I mean, especially for for veterans, I think a big part of the problem is a willingness to address the problem. A lot of veterans are extremely reluctant to seek any kind of help. I mean, that's the military's indoctrination. You're pretty much conditioned to not seek out any sort of mental or physical assistance, really. So I saw that a lot whenever I was in, but I also 
dealt with it a lot kind of in law school. A lot of what I did there, I worked kind of with indigent veterans and their claims to the VA and everything like that. And I mean, a lot of times it's just hard to get those kinds of people to open up at all. Okay. Well, what made you decide to place the character of Victor, who was very much a fundamentalist Christian, into a field of study where he was kind of, in a sense, playing God by attempting to uh, circumvent a law of nature? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, part of that was just practical, right? You know, like, I felt that if time travel technology is or ever were to come about, that it would probably be a defense project. You know, a lot of times that's how those like enormous technological breakthroughs happen because they start off as defense applications. That's how we got GPS. And I mean, it would be like almost inconceivable for just some random person to get their hands on that kind of technology, you know, so it just made sense to put him right there with it. And uh, I think it gave him kind of like some mad scientist vibes there a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Definitely. But um yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that maybe there's something kind of subconscious going on, right? Like he's sort of struggling with his faith from the moment that Sarah dies, mm -hmm. right? So why would you pursue that line of work if you weren't looking to kill God along the way? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, towards the end of the book, Victor's diary is actually what seems to be a very detailed polemic against maybe not Christianity, but like you were saying earlier, the institution of Christianity. Would that be fair to say? Or Yeah. I mean, I'd say the most specific way that you can look at it, yeah, would be against the institution of Christianity. But beyond that, it's really against all of religion. And beyond that, it's, it's almost against all of existence. So, you know, I would say that kind of the purpose of the manifesto, as I call it, I, I know it's, it's not called that in the book. I've just always called it that myself. But um, it's meant to show the full transition, you know, of his beliefs. It kind of from where he starts, you know, in the first couple of chapters to there, it's obviously a pretty big chasm between them. And, you know, the book was always intended to be pretty heavy on philosophy, obviously, because I mean, hell, the diary or manifesto, I mean, I think it's what 45 pages. I mean, it's very, yeah, it's significantly long. And to be honest, I've, I've always regretted not trimming it up maybe a little more than that. So the manifesto is just kind of like where you see that philosophy and the kind of anti theology that's in it. And it's just most obvious forms. I think it's also just meant to show Victor's slipping sanity, you know, how maybe he could be a breath away from trying to kill a child, you know, but it's meant to show like his purpose and aim, you know, he's seeking to extinguish the breadth of religion. You know, he insinuates that if it works, he'll keep doing it. So, yeah. So literally it's like the last gasp of his belief. Yeah. Just, Okay. I would say so. Gotcha. Well, if at all possible, I don't want to give away the climax of the story, but was the climax meant as a final commentary on the meaninglessness of not only existence, but its measurement in time? So, I mean, that's certainly there. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's a, a great encapsulation. And also, you just, of course, see those sort of themes just throughout the book. But I think it's also supposed to symbolize man's inability to overcome religion. And hmm, I'm trying to think of whether or not I should say this because it's a very big spoiler. I'll skip the big spoiler, but here's another one. And I just think it's, it's interesting. And I don't think anyone's ever really asked me about this, but the devil kind of comes up too. you know, the snake that kind of, well, this is a big spoiler, but that foils Victor's plot, you know, it harkens back to Victor stomping on the snake's head in the parking lot of Hell House. And so in some ways, it's almost like, you know, the devil is coming back to get him. Mm. But it also kind of represents the symbiotic relationship that the devil has with God, you know, fear of hell and the unknown of what happens after you die. It keeps religion alive because there's no way to know, you know, and so I think you kind of need the devil just as much as you need God for the whole thing to work. I mean, the fear feeds into the belief more than anything else does, too. And since I've already kind of gone on a big spoiler there, I just go out and say the other thing, too. I would say that, you know, it's probably kind of like my last thumb in the eye to Christianity. You know, make Christ the murderer and, you know, Victor defiant till the end, choking on his own blood and calling him a liar. You know, 
it's probably the most acidic sort of way that I could think to end it in terms of kind of the book's overall agenda. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of funny. The um, I guess if you're talking in terms of the Bible, I guess the first appearance of the iconography of the snake would be the serpent tempting Eve in the garden. Yeah. And then you've got Jesus meditating in the garden of Gethsemane, meditating on his own death, basically. And I think a serpent crawls towards him as he's kneeling down praying and he he steps on his head or something like that. I can't say yeah. that with certainty. I think you're right, but I'm not, I'm not yeah. positive. Um, and then on the the opposite side of like hermetic occult mysticism, stuff like that, the serpent represents wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, all in all, great book. So um, tell me about your second novel, The Malcontents, that you are currently, from what I understand, shopping to prospective literary agents. Yeah. So it's uh, set in 1993. It's about a gang of kids, I would say. They're ages 16 to 23. There's 10 of them. That includes several women, people of color. And there's murder, there's church burnings, there's human sacrifice, rituals, metal music, and uh, suicide. You know, uh, there, right. there's, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's got a lot of good stuff in it. You know? um, <laughs> but uh, it has All the makings of a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it has a lot of elements to it. Some of it's kind of coming of age and misspent youth kind of stuff. Um, so I think especially the early parts of it, it feels kind of lighthearted and rebellious, you know, mm -hmm. but as things progress, their crimes escalate and it develops, you know, into something more sinister, but it's very different from the militant. The militant was kind of always intended to be really philosophy heavy. And it's also just very internal, you know, because you spend so much time inside of Victor's head and Henry's head, but in the malcontents, it's all just, you know, plot driven. It's third person. I would say it was a lot more fun to write than the militant just because the same sort of heavy themes don't really come up quite as much. Yeah. It sounds kind of similar to, uh, I haven't released the episode yet, but I just interviewed Jack Moody for a book called crooked smile and crooked smile is basically like a Dostoevsky esque deep dive into his alcoholism before he got sober. And his next book is a collection of short stories that deal with sci-fi fantasy. <laughs> so he, he did the same thing. He had this like this singularity of catharsis. And then now I'm going into literary fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just go the other way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So in relation to your new book, I heard you mention the satanic panic. So oh, yeah. how old were you during the satanic panic? And what do you remember about it and the way it made you feel? And for listeners at home that don't know what the satanic panic was, it was, I think, late 80s, early 90s, something like that, where all of a sudden people just started freaking out. I think it had something to do with the founding of the Church of Satan, eventually making it into the mainstream, where people just thought there was this massive conspiracy where children were being sacrificed. There was these satanic cabals, kind of like maybe like Pizzagate, which was like way back in 2016, 2017, that turned out later to be, I think, debunked. I hope it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I would just start by saying, so the satanic panic was kind of the ground zero for this book. You know, it's uh, what inspired me to write it. And I think that, I mean, it's a little older than I am. It goes back really to the early 80s, I think maybe even just a little bit before. But yeah, I kind of prepared to talk a little bit about it too. But yeah, I mean, people just kind of thought at the time that Satanism was like this enormous threat to their well-being and safety, especially towards children, you know, and there are these large secret societies of evil people committing all these atrocities, like you said. And, you know, you asked about was it debunked? And yeah, it, it certainly has been. I mean, things like that did happen. They have happened. There are recorded cases of different human sacrifices or ritual abuse, different things like that. But ultimately, you know, it, it became one of those hyperinflated things that just evoked a lot of unnecessary fear. I mean, I would kind of liken it a little bit to McCarthyism. You know, where this idea kind of just sweeps over people and then they all start parroting the same things because nobody wants to be seen as the outsider. You know, that's really the same sort of thing that drove people to burn witches. 
you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's just something that happens when people are afraid of something, they all kind of latch onto the idea and all start promoting it. And everyone's afraid to sort of even question its validity at all. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the malcontents is it's meant to be a kind of tongue in cheek tribute to that. You know, I wanted to make real what they said existed. And I mean, you talk about said that it existed. I mean, a lot of the research, if you want to call it that, for this book came from reading these DOJ guidance documents that they issued out to law enforcement agencies where they kind of listed off all these kind of ridiculous assertions about different things that were happening. But yeah, I mean, it was a very common belief, obviously, all the way up to the head of the Department of Justice was involved in this sort of fear mongering. But anyway, so you asked about like, you know, my age, how old was I? And it just, it reminded me that sort of a strange memory of this as a kid. And I, I was probably about five or six. And I remember my step grandpa telling me kind of about like the dangers of Satanism and stuff like that. And he had these Polaroids with him and he like pulled them out and started showing to me. And like, I don't exactly remember what all the images depicted, but it was like things of like, you know, rings of salt and just different like ritual artifact type things. And he said, if you ever see these symbols run and in in retro. So another way the Christian church has traumatized children. (laughs) Well, you know, but in retrospect, I always thought that that was weird. Like, why did he have these pictures? These are Polaroids, you know? (laughs) I mean, this isn't like, you know, he pulled it up on Google or something because that didn't exist at the time. Yeah, I was just like, here you go. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's a strange guy. He actually ended up dying in a bank robbery in 2008. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's a strange guy. Okay. But yeah. yeah. I think the way the satanic panic went, it actually lasted a long time, I think. I think it was early 80s to early 90s. And so in its heyday, when things started really boiling, I think I was probably about eight years old. And I remember there was this track that pretty much I think all churches had called Satanism in America. Did you ever see that? Mm, I don't think so. No, it was a track, but it was basically like the size and thickness of a magazine. But I remember, you know, it was supposed to be passed around to terrify you. And I don't know what it was about the way that thing was constructed, but I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. (laughs) It it had Anton LaVey in it. It had uh, Michael Aquino with his wife, Lilith, you know, with his serpent staff. It had these Wiccans doing this ritual. Like my mom, I think she was glad that I was reading it because she thought it would ingrain in me to stay away from this stuff. But I just like, man, this looks awesome. Let's worship the devil now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, but I think, didn't it all start with a book? And I never read it. Obviously, I was young enough to where I wasn't really into reading like nonfiction stuff. But I think it was Jennifer Remembers. I'm not familiar with it. So what it was, I mean, I've never read it. Anytime that I've ever read about the Satanic Panic, they all say it started with this book. It was basically a woman that underwent repressed memory therapy. Listeners at home, I'm doing air quotes, that supposedly brought these repressed memories up of her being ritualistically abused, like I guess like sexual abuse in some sort of Satanic ritual fashion, which got everybody in a panic and fueled these conspiracy theories. But one thing that you didn't really find out until the end was this was not common practice. And the person that was the psychiatrist or psychologist that was facilitating this treatment was her own husband, (laughs) which is a uh, wow, (laughs) massive conflict of interest. Yeah. Who then wrote a book called Jennifer Remembers. I think uh, one of the things that I remember most about growing up was like what was left behind. I kind of made a joke about it earlier, but, you know, the books, the movies, they were all a big, big thing back then. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about the process of searching for and utilizing a literary agent. Yeah. So I'd be happy to kind of go over it. But, you know, I've actually been just reflecting for a little while and I think I might just stay indie for a little bit longer because I feel like kind of the, the content of my work is difficult to promote mm-hmm. in people who work in those sorts of arenas. You know, a lot of times that I think they're looking for more polished authors and content that they know will sell, you know, cause it's a little formulaic, you know, or at least it seems that way kind of from the outside looking in, I think I might try and go that route again in my future projects. 
which I plan to be more kind of in the mainstream of horror, okay. you know? So like next I'm thinking about writing a first person slasher. So I, I think I might have a little more luck with that kind of thing. But I think that the sort of anti-religious agenda that's in both of those books, I think it's just a little hard to publish that sort of thing still. But the process, it's pretty simple. You know, you just start by finding agents that might like to publish your work. So obviously you want to start by finding people who work in that genre. And then even just beyond that, it's helpful if you can find something in their bio that suggests that they might be a good fit, you know, because these people, they put out a lot of information about themselves because they want prospective authors to reach out to them, but they want the right kind of authors to reach out to them. They don't want to be inundated with a lot of random things, you know, but ultimately all of this is, you know, you're, you're trying to sell yourself and your book to the agent so that they'll turn around and represent you to the publishers, you know? So yeah, it's definitely an uphill battle. So it's a long process. Some agents take as long as three months or more to get back to you. And some don't reply at all, you know? And if any of my fellow authors out there thinking about undergoing the whole process, I mean, just get comfortable with rejections and <laughs> just keep slogging through. You know, I mean, because honestly, you're going to get rejected. You know, nobody, it would be pretty surprising if somebody just, oh, I sent one query letter and they want to publish my book, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just part of the game. Yeah, I forget who it was I interviewed, but he said he submitted to... I don't know if he submitted to an agent or if it was to a publisher, but he got a rejection letter and he was talking about, you know, how it's basically what happens. So he's like, look, I got my first rejection letter. I am a real writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but is there like a resource that you go to? Cause I remember back in the day, like 2000 early aughts, when I took a writer's workshop, there was like a writer's market that you yeah there's a lot of stuff actually there's manuscript wish list it's almost like every one of them has their own pages and i mean i think where i started my journey was just googling different lists of like agents who take horror at all you know because horror is a pretty small genre in literature so you kind of want to start off by finding those sorts of people okay gotcha and where uh, do you have like a designated spot that you write? Or are you one of those people that just types in their phone here, writes on a cocktail napkin here, and then does some on their laptop when they get home? Well, it's definitely all done on the laptop. Okay. <laughs> that would drive me nuts if I, yeah, writing things on napkins. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I guess in terms of setting, I do change that up a lot because I've find that when I get really bored with my setting, like if I've been using the same one for a long time, then it starts hampering my productivity. Um, so sometimes I'll go to like public places like a Starbucks or a library. A lot of times I just do it at home, but it just kind of depends on the mood, I guess. I don't know. Do you need like a particular ambiance? Do you listen to music? I guess if you're going to Starbucks, you definitely don't need silence. <laughs> Yeah, either I would prefer total silence or I listen to music without lyrics. And that could be anything from metal to horror soundtracks to classical music, anything like that. But yeah. Okay. But when I'm editing, I actually I tend not to listen to any music then because I often read it aloud. Mm, okay. Yeah, cuz it's so much easier to catch a mistake when you read something aloud. So much easier. And you're talking about reading it aloud yourself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll sit there and I'll read from my computer. And, you know, ideally, if you can read something printed off, it's even easier to catch mistakes that way. But yeah, just little tricks I kind of picked up in law school. Okay. Well, how long did it take you to write The Militant? I'd say about 10 months from start to finish. And that's probably pretty standard for me. I mean, I think if I was working really hard, I could maybe do an eight. And if I was slacking off, maybe 12. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever dabble in short stories? I haven't yet. A lot of my author friends do, and some have encouraged me to do so too. But I probably should, you know, because I think that there's there's probably a lot that you can do with short stories that it's maybe more difficult to do with a novel. But just really, I mean, the prospect of like committing less time per project is also appealing just because 
man, it can be exhausting working on a single creative project for several months. You know, like if that's the only kind of creative outlet that you have and you're just sucked into this one set of characters, this one story, it can get really, <laughs> it can drag on. Who are your uh, writing influences? So I like a lot of the big existentialist writers, Camus, Sartre, Dostoevsky, which I, I heard you mention earlier. But whenever I was writing The Militant, for example, I read a lot of books with similar themes. So some of the ones that kind of stuck out were Lord of the Flies, Flowers for Algernon, American Psycho, Brave New World. And I think maybe one of the biggest ones was Thomas Ligotti's Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Interestingly, he's almost like the opposite of me because he is a very long, well-established horror writer. And he just randomly decided to release this book of philosophy. Interesting. But yeah, I don't know, man. It's a very powerful book. And reading it will kind of have you doubting the reality of just everything around you. But uh, yeah, I'd say those, especially for the militant in particular, those were all pretty big. But I kind of try to listen to similar things whenever I'm on a given project. So obviously, the things that I've read and listened to for the malcontent was pretty different. Well, when you are writing, how do you schedule it around your day job and spending time with friends and family? So I, I actually work independently for the most part. I just accept jobs from my law firm. And actually, I work for a few different firms, but I just travel out to meet my clients for the day. And so I don't really have like a traditional nine to five where you always have to wear a suit and be at the office all day. And so I just kind of write in any dead space that I find throughout the day, really. And I often, you know, set up goals to keep myself on track for the day. You know, like whenever... I was writing the malcontents, I would maybe aim for four or 500 words a day where that's really not like a crazy amount, but it's certainly enough to where it won't take you forever to write a book at that pace. But yeah, I mean, you do kind of have to be flexible sometimes because at times your real job's going to get busier and, you know, writing's going to have to take a pause for a little bit. Okay. Well, you say in your bio that you are a horror fanatic, and I think you were talking about film, I guess, as well as literature. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Just horror in general, scary things. Okay. Did that lead you into writing or have you always wanted to be a writer? Um, I would not say that I've always wanted to be a writer. I mean, I can remember dabbling in it, you know, as early as high school, but I would say that writing in terms of me kind of taking it more seriously and actually pursuing like publishing my work and things like that, that kind of fell into my lap. You know, I was just sort of going through a really contemplative time towards the end of law school. And, you know, I just had sort of a lot of thoughts that I wanted to put down. And, you know, I had started outlining it and I had started getting it going and I think I'd even written a few chapters and then quarantine hit. So, you know, I spent most of that kind of like next year writing and studying for the bar and then, you know, looking for a job after the bar and different things like that. So I think in some ways quarantine actually kind of worked in my favor because it gave me a lot of time to write. So kind of, I guess, off topic, I'm just curious, how difficult is the bar exam? Oh, it is extremely difficult just because of the amount of information that you have to learn, you know, and it's really kind of ridiculous, man, because you have to learn so much stuff that, I mean, it's just physically impossible to keep it in your head longer than, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Because it, it's not as though like, oh, you know, I've passed the bar. I now know everything about the law and I'm going to remember this stuff forever. Like, no, this is just stuff that you've been cramming into your head. And uh, <laughs> like I'm saying, it, most of it vanishes after you take the test. But I think a lot of the anxiety of the bar, it's kind of like the consequences of failure, you know, because if you fail it, you're going to have to pay another probably thousand dollars to take another one. You're going to have to wait six more months mm -hmm. and then you're going to have to explain to all these employers that you failed the bar and they're going to oh, love that, yeah. you know, because who wants to hire a lawyer who failed the bar? Yeah. And then you're going to have to explain to all your friends and family like, yeah, I failed. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to pass, of course. And yeah, I mean, it was certainly difficult, nerve wracking. Well, sorry to go off topic. I just really wanted oh. to know that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem. Well, so what do you find the most and least enjoyable part of the writing process from inception to publication? 
So for me, I would say my writing kind of falls into three parts, outlining, writing, and then editing. And I think that the outlining is probably the most enjoyable part. You know, for me, it's that early phase of the writing where you just get to be creative and you're trying to kind of like formulate the arc of your narrative and everything's brand new and you're full of hope. You're full of vigor. It's a new, exciting project, you know, Mm -hmm. and then editing comes far down the line. And I hate that the most by far. It's not bad like when you first start, you know, Uh but by the 15th or 20th time that you've read your own book, I mean, it gets very old. And then all the words start kind of running together and losing their meaning. And yeah, I have no love lost for editing for sure. Yeah. But you got to do it, you know. You do it all yourself? Yeah, I do. And that's why it's such a cumbersome process because, I mean, honestly, I think sometimes it takes me about as long to edit as it does to write. Mm. Just because I tend to kind of obsess over word choice and syntax and structure and stuff like that. And so I'll make a lot of tweaks and stuff like that. But I think your final product, at least for me, it ends up being a lot better. I mean, I definitely know that there's a lot of writers out there that either do very little editing or that, you know, maybe they edit in very different ways. But for me, it definitely helps a lot. Okay. Yeah. I imagine being the author yourself, having so much skin in the game, the editing can probably be very maddening as far as how uh, meticulous and detailed you're trying to be. Yeah. So if you don't mind saying, what kind of law do you practice? Uh, So I mostly do real estate closings. I have some experience in criminal law and also in veterans law as well. That was kind of like mostly in law school, but yeah, mostly real estate is what I do. Okay. Sounds like you have a pretty sweet schedule. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it was better before they started raising interest rates. So work has kind of really slowed since that's happened. But, you know, I'm just kind of diversifying a little bit more, trying to move into a few other things other than just real estate. Gotcha. All right. Well, you also state that you are a black metal enthusiast. What are some of your favorites? Uh, so I'd say probably Bathory, Burzum, Belphegor, Dark Throne, Gorgoroth. Okay. So funny story. I'm not really into death metal. Some of it I am, but uh, when I was about like 19, 20 years old, I just went full bore into uh, death metal, black metal. And I went to a local club to see Deicide. And oh, yeah, I saw them in Atlanta a couple years ago. Did you? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. this was like 99, I think. Nice. And uh, <laughs> well, no, not nice because I didn't get to see them. Oh. Uh, they got into a car wreck on the way to the club. They had their bus was there, but then they had gotten into some sort of vehicle, I guess, maybe to go get something to eat or something like that. And on the way back, they got into a car wreck. And I don't think anybody got hurt. Because when I talked to like one of the bouncers at the club or something, I was like, so they're really not going to play? And they're like, no, they're already gone. (laughs) Damn, man. Oh, what a letdown. So, yeah, (laughs) but at least Marduk opened for them. Oh, cool. I had never seen them before. I didn't even know who was opening for them. So I was like, oh, well, that was pretty sweet. But yeah, it was such a letdown. I'm almost a little surprised that they would have been paired together because from my understanding, like especially back then, there was like a lot of bad blood between the death metal. And black. Was there? Yeah. In fact, there was a bomb that went off at one of DSI shows and a lot of them kind of thought that it was people in the black metal community that had done it. But yeah, there used to be kind of like, I don't know, I'd call it a competition, whatever you want between black metal and death metal, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was the other one? I went to go see Cannibal Corpse and Demu Borger opened for them. And I didn't know who Demu Borger was and they were awesome. So was Cannibal Corpse, but yeah. So this one is really interesting to me because I kind of hold some views and some particular aspects of this philosophy. You say that you are a nihilist. Is that like tongue in cheek or you literally mean that? I mean it. I have a little more that I want to say on it, but I think I'll let you finish your question first. Oh, I was just going to say, like me personally, I would say I'm an existential nihilist. I would say that I am a moral nihilist. I would say to some extent I'm an epistemological nihilist. I don't know if I would go so far as to say ontological because, I mean, even though I may not be literal flesh and blood, I might be in a computer program or something like that. 
I still think I exist in some sense, you know? Right. So, yeah, I think for me, it's mostly moral and existential. Mm-hmm. But I think what I would also say, too, is I don't know. I've kind of strayed away from using the term. You know, I, I think my feelings are still the same, but it's probably just kind of one of the least understood philosophical notions out there. You know, I think people hear it and it either sets off like alarm bells or they're just like, oh, that's juvenile. You know, that's kind of something I've heard nihilism described as. But for me, you know, nihilism just represents the abandonment of ideology to the furthest extent possible. You know, it's foregoing all prescriptive philosophies that tell us, you know, how we should live and what we should do with our lives, you know. And I think kind of like I was saying, I kind of buy into moral and existential nihilism and maybe even just a little bit of political, but it's something I stand by. Yeah. You say nihilism being the least understood. I am totally with you on that because I cannot bring it up with anybody, especially somebody I work with, without them automatically saying, we don't believe in nothing, Lebowski. Yeah. (laughs) Believe in nothing. Nothing, Lebowski. Give us some money, Lebowski. (laughs) Bloody says you're good for it. Oh, God. So (laughs) annoying. Can't have a serious conversation. No, no. And what's funny is I used to think of myself more as an existentialist. And then uh, I think law school kind of turned me into a nihilist. Yeah. It just happens. But yeah. 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 I like Camus' concept of absurdism. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to admire there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, can you huh, maybe <laughs> this next question? Maybe not. <laughs> Feel free to pass. But uh, can you tell me a little bit about your time serving in combat? Yeah, sure. So I was an infantry Marine. I was trained specifically in mortars. And that's kind of like smaller field portable artillery, you know, lobbing things from the sky that explode. (laughs) But I was stationed in Hawaii after I went to the School of Infantry. And then I trained there and kind of lived there in between my two deployments to Afghanistan. And, you know, so I joined in 2008. And I got out 2012. And I was Part of President Obama's surge into Afghanistan where the idea is, you know, let's saturate, especially Helmand province, and they sent in about 100,000 troops. And so where I was specifically, both deployments, maybe about 50 miles north of Pakistan, uh, it's an extremely impoverished area. And it's extremely rural. You know, most people's professions would be farmers. Um, There's no electricity. There's no running water. So my first deployment was just before Thanksgiving of 2009. We were there for about seven months. And it was more kinetic than my second one because, you know, things were just worse in Afghanistan around 2009 than they were, say, around 2010 and 11. So IEDs were kind of the main weapon of the Taliban at the time. That was really the only thing that scared me or, or most of us about being there. You know, most of us really didn't mind the thought of dying over there as much as the thought of being maimed or just coming home crippled, missing a limb, things like that. Um, and, you know, the Taliban would mostly engage us with like hit and run attacks. You know, that, that's just kind of the go to strategy of a smaller force seeking to fend off a larger occupying force, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's not all combat all the time, you know, even on a deployment, you know, in counterinsurgency, they use what's called clear, hold, build. And the idea is first you clear an area of insurgents and then you hold it against their attacks after they revert to terrorism tactics. And then you can build. And that's kind of where the whole hearts and minds notion, that phrase comes in, you know, winning the hearts and minds of the Afghans. And so my experience was kind of more in the holding and the building phases. So a lot of the jobs kind of like being a cop in a foreign country, you know, you have to know the people, you have to know kind of like their baseline behavior, you have to look for anything that's out of place, you know, and that might be people's reactions to your presence. It might be disturbed earth, wires, whatever, you know, people giving you strange looks, people observing you and your patrols or writing things down or making a phone call, like right whenever you walk by, you know, things like that. Um, So it's just kind of like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you have to be alert. I mean, (laughs) that's part of it. 
But, um, but you know, I mean, you also, you have to establish rapport with the locals, you know, going back to that whole hearts and minds thing, you know? So like a lot of times you meet with village elders or other people in the community and, you know, you sit down and drink chai with them or I don't know, maybe even share bread is kind of one of the most common staple foods there. So a lot of times they would bake bread and like share it with you or whatever. And, um, I mean, your average civilian, they're hospitable people, you know, that's part of their culture. So that was certainly a lot of it too, because ultimately what you're there to do is to kind of hear their grievances about what they think is wrong with their country and their community and different things like that. And kind of how the Western backed government can go about helping them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it, it, you're kind of promoting the interest of the Western backed government, which, you know, it no longer exists. But at the time, you know, that was kind of the aim. Well, I've seen some videos and pictures of you squatting and deadlifting. Is that purely for personal health or do you do any kind of like competitions? I would say it's really just for health. I've thought about competing before, but honestly, it's just, it's like something I've never gotten around to. And now I think a lot of my aims have changed. I used to really prioritize my numbers a lot more, but now I'm really, I'm just kind of trying to stay leaner, you know, and it's just the nature of the beast, you know, can't really be lean and strong at the same time. One kind of comes at the expense of the other, but I would say it's probably even maybe for like mental health more than anything, you know, it, yeah. it does a lot for me personally and mm. it's hard to see me ever stopping. It's kind of something that I need, but I think that there's just something to be said about kind of forcing yourself to those sorts of limits that makes it more appealing to me than other forms of exercise, you know? I mean, it can literally be dangerous. If, you know. I was about to ask you, how's your discs holding up? <laughs> oh, they're pretty good. You good. know, I do go to a chiropractor, but no, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to switch to, uh, you know, I never really like deadlifted extremely heavy, but I had to switch to the hex bar because oh, yeah. I have like, I have lower back, upper back. And I used to do front squats, but I can't do that anymore because I had this shoulder operated on. So having the bar on top of it just messes me up. So. It's kind of doing leg presses these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, you got to do what works best for you and you got to listen to your body, you know, because <laughs> if you don't, yeah, you pay for it. It. <laughs> it will not take no for an answer at a certain point. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, so if there is one thing that you would want people to take away from reading The Militant, what would it be? Well, I would say it probably sounds cliche, but. Be free and think for yourself, mm -hmm. you know, don't trust in what you're taught as a child. Don't trust in established institutions for answers and evaluate all ideology with suspicion. Awesome. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> you got a mic you can drop something, something. Right. Boom. Boom. There it goes. Boom. Fucking it. <laughs> well, Mason, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, it's been great, man. Thanks again for having me on the show. So uh, as we bring the show to a close, do you have anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? I would just say to, to be on the lookout for the malcontents soon. I am really working very hard now to get everything finalized because like I said, I, I think I'm going to stay indie on this. So I'm probably looking to release in uh, the next two months. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Mason, thank you again for joining me. Thanks, Vince. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. I am chopped and screwed, RIP to Pimp C. You think I was from Texas, but I come from Tennessee. We party all night and we own a Shots, then my screws loose. And this a 90s party, we gon' raise the roof. To all
all the bad girls to come to the booth. We gon' party like it's 99. And I'm with all the slimes like Nick. And we lit like dick. And I'm looking real slick. All black with the fit. Wearing coochie like I'm big. Put my down to the kicks. Bust down on the wrist. La mama pressing down on the stick like a PS5. And we've been taking flight. We got red eyes. And we ain't on the ground, but we going live. Party all night, we got all the juice. I took a couple shots, now my screws loose. And it's a nineties party, we gon' raise the roof. To all the bad girls to come to the booth. Party all night, we got all the juice. I took a couple shots, now my screws loose. And it's a nineties party, we gon' raise the roof. To all the bad girls to come to the booth. Yeah. I'm dazed and confused, cause I've been on that juice like I'm Machiavelli. And I just took a shot, and I drank it off a of belly. She went to see the deli, I'ma take it to the telly. I've been on that drink, so there's nothing you can tell me. My confidence is sky high, and baby getting low, so I feel a mile high. La mama doing tricks, voila, mid tonight is flying by. Party all night, we got all the juice. I took a couple shots, now my screws loose. And it's a 90s party, we gon' raise the roof. Tell all the bad girls to come to the booth. Party all night, we got all the juice. I took a couple shots, now my screws loose. And it's a 90s party, we gon' raise the roof. Tell all the bad girls to come to the booth. Nah, we ain't blue moon sippers. We be on that liquor. We be taking shots, we ain't coming up a hipper. I took it to the head, it went straight to my liver. We be on that gas, I ain't talking about a filler. I be on that ace, you would think my name was Jigger. I be with my Migos, you would think my name is Flipper. My whole team ballin', you would think we playin' picker. I got hella chips, you would think I was the Ripper. Diamonds on my neck, and they wet like Flipper. Baby coming at me like she Twitter. I'm starting to consider. Shawty is a baddie, and she thicker than a Snicker. She begging me to kiss her. Shorty like pickers. She drank it hella fast. Now little mama got the hiccups. She this party foul, so be careful. You might slip her. I'm with all my hitters. I hands in the air like a sticker.